Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. The Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEN. This is the Sporting Capital on SEN. Jordan Canellis with you this Monday night, filling in for Sam Hargraves. Good to be in your company. 0433981116 to send us a text. Thanks to Temper, a mattress like no other. And for Harcourts, you can give us a call. 1300 736 736. Your move, your Harcourts. Coming up this hour on the program, we will chat a bit of Formula One later on, coming up at half past. Michael Laminato from the Box of Neutrals podcast and the F1 Strategy Report will be with us to chat about the French Grand Prix from earlier this morning where Max Verstappen got his seventh win of the season in 12 races. He is the championship-leading driver in the World Drivers' Championship. Uh, Charles Leclerc crashing out, affecting his chances or his hopes. Um, not completely. There's still almost half a season to go, but it's uh, certainly not great when you're crashing out of a, of a pivotal race in Europe. So he is, uh, he's going to be with us, Michael Laminato, to chat about the race and give us a, uh, about a you know, halfway, strategy, or halfway uh, season report on, uh, on the Formula One season, just over the halfway mark. So we'll chat a bit of that. Uh, we'll hear from uh, what was said earlier in the day on SEN around the, uh, the round of football that was. A couple of headlines from around the sporting world, the end of the Tour de France Earlier this morning, the World Athletics Championships where Australia has had some success and the Boomers as well getting the trophy in the Asia Cup in the FIBA tournaments for the second time in a row, beating Lebanon by two points over the weekend. So it's been a pretty decent weekend for Australian international sports. Um, the Tour de France could have gone better maybe. But uh, World Athletics and the uh, and the basketball was all pretty, pretty good. If you're a Melbourne Storm fan, not so good. A loss on the weekend to the South Sydney Rabbitohs. It's a fourth loss in a row, I think, now for the Melbourne Storm, and they are slipping. They were in second on the NRL ladder uh, about four or five weeks ago. They started this round in uh, in, ninth, in the fifth position. Current ladder position right now is still in fifth. Still in fifth position, but, uh, yeah, they've lost the last couple of matches in a row. They've got the Warriors up next, who... Uh, sitting in the bottom four, so you'd think Melbourne Storm should get the win, but uh, in the upcoming round of of uh, NRL football, but goodness knows what is happening to Melbourne Storm at the moment. They are on the slide right now. Anyway, that's the uh, the global sport analysis. You can send through your nominations for heroes and villains, because that's what we are doing right now. Zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen to send through your messages. 
or you can give us a call as well and have a chat about who your hero or who your villain was from the weekend. one 736 736 here on the Sporting Capital. Can I start off with the obvious one? I'm sure uh, a lot of people might be thinking this way, but it's low-hanging fruit, so I'm not stealing anyone's thunder in particular because we've already been speaking about it for about an hour uh, well, on this program, let alone the rest of the day on SEN. But the heroes for the weekend, clearly the obvious one for the Pies was Jamie Elliott and his match-winning goal after the siren. Not only for just kicking the goal, but, God, it was a hard angle too, and he was out a long way. He kicked it from about, what was it, 50 metres or so, just inside 50 metres, roughly, 45 and on the angle, starting his run up from outside the boundary, 45 metres, a 45-degree uh, angle, so not easy from that far out, way up on the flank, and he's nailed it from uh, from that distance. Um, the composure, the experience from Jamie Elliott to convert it from from that spot on the park uh, was uh, was exceptional. And Jamara Hagen for his five goals uh, for the Western Bulldogs on Saturday night. And that's uh, in his own goal from left half forward on the run as well, kicking with the curve of the boundary. Uh, an exceptional goal for Jamara Hagen and one of his breakout performances in Western Bulldogs colours to help the Dogs get a 10-point win over Melbourne. The other hero I'll give for his uh, his haul of goals on the weekends was uh, Jack Gunston, coming back from uh, a couple of weeks off, having uh, lost his father, going through a grieving period, coming back for the Hawks, and kicking five goals four against North Melbourne in Tassie. Hawthorne's first game in Hobart, which was, I know they're a, a Tasmanian team, but they play in Launceston, as we all know. Never knew they hadn't played at Bell Reve Oval, though. Their first game at Blundstone Arena on the weekends against uh, against North Melbourne. And uh, five goals for Jack Gunston. And uh, kicked the first goal of the game as well. Kissed the uh, the black armband around his bicep and dedicated his uh, his first goal to his dad. And then went on to kick four more for Hawthorne as they ran over the top of North Melbourne by a pretty healthy 46-point margin. So hero goes to Jack Gunston for his efforts on the weekends as well. Uh, Trent Bianco had six of his 13 touches in the last quarter. Trent Bianco is a player who I really like the look of. I enjoyed watching and, and calling him last year. He's uh, he's got a he's a player with a bit of uh, bit of grunt about him. He's got you know he's got some decent you know you know whereabout and wherewithal on the ground and good ability haven't seen too much of him this season he was uh playing his i think fifth game of the season he played round one four eight and then 14 i think it was um so he hasn't played too much football this season trempianko but i'm glad to see him getting a, another go because i like him as a, a young prospect for the pies but six of his, his 13 touches came in the last quarter including the uh the goal assist to jamie elliott to get the winning goal at the end of the game. Uh, Michael Frederick for his smother on Noah Bolter. That's that's a player who knows uh, what's going on in the game. Good game awareness, Michael Frederick. He was he dashed off his line when he heard the play on call from the umpire and was right there at the double to smother Noah Bolter and um, and effectively, I guess in a way, indirectly maybe winning the game. It wasn't the the game winning moment because there was a few more phases of play afterwards, but. Uh, Noah Bolter could have easily gone back and kicked that goal had he not wasted his time and that could have been the game-winning moment. So Michael Frederick for a uh, sort of game-winning save with a uh, with a smother on Noah Bolter. Uh, and a couple from the rest of the sporting world. So I mentioned the World Athletics Championships a moment ago. Kelsey Lee Barber is uh, one of our uh, best exponents in uh, track and field. Uh, javelin athlete who defended her title. It's not often that you get a, um, a an athlete defending their title at the World Athletics Championships, but she did that in the javelin, and it's been a pretty good 
uh, World Athletics Championships for the Aussies with Eleanor Patterson in the high jump and uh, Kelsey Lee Barber in the javelin. So well done to her. Peter Bull made the final of the 800 metres, finished seventh at the end, but uh, still to make the final of the 800 in a competitive field is exceptional. Squeezed in, just made it by a hair's breadth in the semis. He was uh, the last qualifier, I think, and uh, had the uh, the little Q next to his name, which meant he wasn't an automatic qualifier. He was uh, one of the, the, the best of the, the next best, I guess. Uh, but he made it to the final, so well done to Peter Bowl. And then for the Boomers, they won their Asia Cup, their second Asia Cup trophy in a row, uh, beating Lebanon 75-73. to And Thon Maker has really been the one who's led the Boomers through the Asian Cup. He's pretty much top scored in every game, just about. Top scored again for the green and gold in the final against uh, Lebanon. He's had 14 points, 6 from 13 from the floor. Uh, 0 from 4 from three-point range, though. Might have to work on that. But nonetheless, uh, 14 points for Thon Maker. And, uh, and he was one of the reasons why the Aussies uh, got through to the final and then beat Lebanon. That was uh, easily the hardest game for Australia in the Asian Cup. Pretty much every match through the group stage and then the knockouts was a double digits victory. Uh, tough one against New Zealand uh, near the end there. And then uh, through to the final they went and um, had to uh, had to do it tough against against Lebanon, but got the trophy and it's their second in a row for the Aussies. Zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen for who you thought your hero or villain was. Jack says, my hero was Charlie Curnow. For his um, his game on Saturday on Sunday, I beg your pardon. There's probably a couple of uh, Blues players you could nominate. We haven't even spoken tonight about. We've spoken about the goals, but not the marks. How about the two marks from that game? Adam Saad and Toby Green, two huge highlights uh, from uh, from both sides yesterday afternoon. But uh, indeed, Charlie Kerno with four goals, extending his lead at the top of the Coleman Medal tally. Toby Green had three goals as well. Uh, and then Jack says the villain is the AFL umpiring department. Um, for uh, for their uh, impacts on the rules and the change of interpretations we're seeing right now uh, on the field. Uh, Michael says, uh, Hero, the fan who snuck a cat into the football on the weekend. Yeah, I saw that. I saw a photo of that cat. Not a very happy-looking cat, but um, still kind of cute. But how do, you, how do you get a cat into the football? I mean, you can't just carry it in. Unless, it's, unless I'm mistaken, you can bring in, like, uh, emotional support animals, but... I don't know if that's been checked off yet by the uh, by the stadiums. So how'd they get a cat into the ground? Sneak it in the backpack? They do bag checks at games, but they're not that thorough, are they, the bag checks? So maybe they hid the cat under a uh, under a jacket in the backpack and then just pulled it out of the bag, pulled a cat out of the bag in the last uh, or in in the game, and then took a photo of it on social media. And the villains from uh, from uh, Michael were. Oh, no, he didn't have a villain. Just a, just a hero for Michael. Uh, Jonathan says uh, Redmond and the umpires are villains on Ginevan's High. A couple of villains there. Yeah, Mason Redmond wouldn't be the uh, the uh, number one player for uh, for Collingwood fans right now, I think, from the weekend. A couple of my villains from the weekend. Uh, the return of the tagger. So it's not quite a villain, but it's villains, I guess, for opposition coaches and uh, fans of teams who like to see their midfielders get off uh, off the leash a little bit and uh, and rack up those possessions, but the tagger is back, and we see this more in the in the uh, in the in the back half of the season. Josh Dunkley was uh, one of our experts on AFL Nation over the weekend. He was asked the question about taggers and why do they happen more in the back end of the season, mainly because I guess players have form and they have that momentum throughout you know from game to game. So 
We see tagers emerge. Finn McGuinness uh, was a tagger on the weekend. He's been, well, not just the weekend, but the last month or so for the Hawks and uh, kept Jai Simkin to 14 touches. Marcus Swindhager kept Tim Kelly to four touches and a uh, positional change for Jordan Dawson to, cha- uh, to shake uh, Ryan Clark, who's been brought in by John Longmire and uh, doing a solid job as a tagger uh, for the Swans. So we're seeing the emergence of the taggers. Not quite a, a villain per se, but a villain, I guess, for the opposition coaches. We have to deal with them and... We want to see those uh, high uh, high possession, high impact midfielders get those uh, get those you know game winning moments or big games, three vote games in the Brownlow, and they're being scuppered by the villains, uh, by the uh, taggers right now. And uh, in the Formula One, we'll chat a bit more about this in a couple of minutes with Michael Laminato, our Formula One expert. But Ferrari, what are they doing? They are blowing it this season. They had the chance to be an absolute contender for the title this season in both the constructors and the drivers' championship. Uh, they've got two very good, very young drivers who have lots of talent, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz. They've clearly got a fast car because they are dominating Saturdays. They are killing it in qualifying, doing so well, and then they blow it on Sunday, whether it's through a bit of bad luck as well here and there. You can't control uh, everything uh, on the on the Formula One track. Sometimes you'll get hit by another driver, so you, know, you can't help those ones. But last night, having Charles Leclerc spin out, when he was leading the race, was that just driver error? Was it was it team strategy error? Did they leave him on a set of tyres for too long? Was there too much degradation on those tyres that caused him to slip off the road? Charles Leclerc and then Carlos Sainz, when he was in the midst of battling for third position and going for a podium, the team called him to box and come into the pits and that ended up costing him a couple of positions and no podium for Carlos Sainz. So there was a, a whole host of championship points that were there for Ferrari to take last night in France, and uh, they all went a-begging. And Formula and um, the Red Bull uh, F1 team ended up uh, getting the win. Max Verstappen was uh, was great as always, and uh, extending their lead in the F1 Drivers and Constructors Championship. So, villains, Ferrari for bad decision-making, bad strategy, not just this morning, but over the season as well. Had the perfect chance to be a contender this season. They're still up there. They're still second, but the, the gap is growing. The margin between Red Bull and Ferrari is, uh, is ever-expanding. 0433981116. If you'd like to send through a text. Greg says, uh, Villain Damien Hardwick for his abuse of players from over the fence uh, at the VFL on the weekend. Unacceptable. Yeah, I've got to agree with that. that was, um, I didn't see that one happening. That was out of nowhere, really, from Damien Hardwick. He was, uh, he was uh, effectively defending his player, Ryan Mansell, who got hit behind the... Uh, or hit when it was not looking by an opposition player, but... Yeah, the way uh, the way that he went off, I can understand his position in trying to uh, you know defend his players from in his squad, but the way he did it, not great. Damien Hardwick. So Greg, your nomination there, and uh, villains only twenty six thousand at a grand final replay. Melbourne supporters not turning up. Uh, looks like <laughs> looks like the snow is calling mid season. Uh, says uh, is that from anonymous? Yeah, anonymous off the text. So yeah, not the uh, not the crowd size that some people wanted from the grand final replay on Saturday. We'll take a break here on the Sporting Capital. Your heroes and villains, send those through. 0433981116 on AFL, on World Sport, on anything you want. And we'll get to some of those headlines as well from the world of sport on the other side of this. And Michael Laminato will be with us very shortly here on the Sporting Capital. 0433981116 for temper, a mattress like no other. You're listening to the Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEM.
Welcome back to the Sporting Capital here on SEN. Jordan Canellis with you, filling in tonight. Uh, thanks to Betfair, lay bet on AFL markets only at Betfair. Gamble responsibly. Call one 858 Let's wrap up our footy chat tonight. We'll head on to other sports after this. But uh, a couple of things that were said today uh, around the station on SEN uh, from uh, some of our uh, rap or review shows from the morning. Uh, Nathan Buckley, Gary Lyon on breakfast. David King with the Monday Means Test. Um, in the uh, in the after well, in the mid morning, this was uh, Bucks and Gary Lyon speaking about Jack Ginevan and the tackle that he received uh, in the game on Sunday. Yeah, it was a missed missed decision. Yeah, but the, but the but the fact it happened to the guy that that we or that that this yes. rule interpretation has shifted or been reinforced yeah. about was... Um, I think there was a heavy Ginneman loading on what happened th- well, in that instance. Yeah, and yeah. that's not that's not right. No, we no, can't no, have no, that. no, no, no. I don't think anyone is suggesting that he, he got his right way. No, but when you but you said it. You just said it. There's a heavy Ginneman waiting. Yeah, yeah. It, and it, that it, is not... Ac- that, no, no, that, in this, that is in not this instance, acceptable. In this instance, it is not acceptable. I don't expect it to continue. I hope it doesn't continue. I think... Too many people would disagree with that after what we saw from Jack Inovan on the weekends. That was a, uh, we spoke about it earlier, Mason Redmond ragdolling uh, uh, Jack Inovan in that instance. David King spoke about Essendon specifically and had some pretty pretty scathing words to say about the Bombers. You just win that game. You just win that game. You don't have your captain on the bench for starters. Close games need leadership. They had him on the field for 60 minutes in the second half in, in, in succession. And then they had to give him a had to give him a break at the end of the the, the, the the match because he was spent. That's poor management, and that's on your strength and conditioning uh, staff. That's on the guys at bench level. He's standing right next to them. What are you doing down there? So if you if you can't manage that, then then your other leaders have to have to engage. The three prime leaders of the Essendon Football Club were ready to run in. They were creeping in to hug the the, the goal scorer. That's not the, that's not leadership. That's for the first gamer to run in and do that. Uh, the, the club's a mess, and this this there's no other angle to start than comparing what McRae does and what Rutten does. The right. poles apart. Poles apart. The club's a mess. Is that too harsh from David King on on his thoughts on Essendon at the end of la, oh, yes, end of yesterday's game? Is it a fair assessment from Kingy? Zero four double three. 98 11, 16. He spoke about the Demons and analysed what's happened to them this season and where teams are starting to f- or starting to exploit them, starting to find out where the gaps are. This was uh, David King's assessment of Melbourne and how they lost to the Dogs the other night. I think Melbourne, there's, there's now different templates on how to beat Melbourne. And I think the number one template that's been adopted is to not kick the ball back to Max Gorn and Luke Jackson down the line. Yep. To go around them. So the... So the good teams have gone around Melbourne, tried to use angles a little bit sh- you know, short then over. Uh, the dogs on the weekend, they had, a, they had a, a principle of lasering your passes. And if we miss them, we miss them. But we're not going to give the ball back to Max Gorn down the line because everything else is set up off that from a Melbourne point of view. Win it, and then the runners get involved, and the game goes from first gear to fourth gear straight away. Langdon charging, Spargo charging, Pickett on the end, and then in quickly to Bailey Fritch, who's unstoppable when, when he's got that space. So if you turn the ball over, lasering through the angles and trying to switch to the other side, you know what? You, you might give the ball back, but you don't give it back to Melbourne the way they are set up to win it back. And you may not pay a price. 
So I think that they've been they've been picked apart so heavily now that they, they they've been forced into change. It's a bad time to to be forced into change. So their their advantage, you could mount a case that their advantage has lasted a full season of last year and 10, 12 weeks of this year. So it's had a it's had a thirty five game lifespan. Do, do they have to tinker, or do they just have to get? Do they just have to get better? I don't know if it's about getting better at what you do because what they do is what they do. So we know what they're trying to do. So they're brutal at centre-bounds clearance. They kick six goals from centre-bounds clearance on the weekend. You average about one and a half. So that's, that's a massive advantage. They can still win a game by dominating scores from clearance. But I don't know right now if they can win a game defensively. And if you can't win games defensively, you can't win preliminary finals. And that's all we track. Can you win a preliminary final play like this right now? Right now, I have no faith in Melbourne winning a preliminary final. Fair assessment from David King on Melbourne, yes or no? Send us a text. I actually think that's pretty fair, so I thought his thoughts on Essendon a moment ago, a bit harsh. But the thoughts on Melbourne, I don't completely disagree with. Would you have faith in Melbourne in a prelim final right now if they were to play a prelim? You'd have to say no. On the balance of things, from mid-season to now, and, and King's assessment's pretty spot on. One of the, one of the things that I just... My mind was constantly boggling at how how teams would, in their entries inside fifty, would always kick it long and high. That is, that's you're going to get killed if you play Melbourne like that. Their intercept defenders are incredible. Uh, that's that's the trademark of their of their back half is intercepting the ball through midair. If you play lower, you start to cut through on the angles, play incisive football through their defence. Then that's probably a, a better way or more more assured way of, of getting quality ball inside 50 and getting scores from it. And that's um, the Western... I read the stats out earlier. The Western Bulldogs beat uh, the uh, beat the Ds with inside 50 counts. They had the same amount of scoring shots. So on the balance of that, scoring inside 50 efficiency was down, but inside 50 raw numbers were up on Melbourne. And that was... Um, I guess that's uh, tantamount to how the Western Bulldogs defeated the Demons and how people or how teams are picking the Demons apart. Zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. Talking Formula One on the other side of this with Michael Laminato, French Grand Prix this morning. Lots to unpack. That's next. You're listening to the Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEN. Welcome back to the Sporting Capital. Jordan Canellas with you here this Monday night. Good to be with you. You can send through a text, 0433981116, if you'd like to get involved, or you can give us a call, 1300 736 736, if you'd like to have your say uh, on the phones uh, at any point on the Sporting Capital tonight. We're here for Betfair. Betfair's Brownlow predictor has been right three years in a row. Check it today. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. We'll uh, check in with some of the uh, global sporting headlines in a couple of moments, but there was a pretty big uh, event. Pretty significant, um, uh, well, pretty significant uh, string of uh, dramas, really, that happened at the French Grand Prix overnight. Let's get stuck into it. Who's that gone off? It's Leclerc. It's Leclerc. Leclerc. Are, are, are you okay? I got a pop throttle. Charles Leclerc is out of the race, and for the third time this season, Charles Leclerc, when leading a race, won't go on to finish it. No! 
That was the sound of Charles Leclerc last night crashing out on lap 18 of the French Grand Prix. And with that, his title chances slip away even further. Max Verstappen went on to win the race in France this morning and his championship lead increases in the World Drivers' Championship. Michael Laminato from the Box of Neutrals podcast and the F1 Strategy Report is with us here on SEN. Leclerc's crash was significant for the race, but how significant now for the season is is those lost points on in the title race against Max Verstappen? Well, it's enormous. There's no, no two ways about that, unfortunately. Unless Max is going to retire from, from Budapest this weekend and sort of reset the picture. If Max wins this weekend in Budapest... We're, only at, we're not even at the mid-season break, just keep that in mind. If he wins this weekend in Budapest, he can finish second for the rest of the year and still win the championship. It's, it's significant. He's not going to win the rest of the year because that Ferrari car is really quick. That was the positive takeaway that Ferrari was very keen to remind everyone of. But to fight back from a margin like that, when the Ferrari is not necessarily dominant, it is just equally as quick as the Red Bull car, that's an enormous ask without some fortune. So, okay, what's your assessment on that then? Because Ferrari is a quick car. They dominate on Saturdays, but then it's Sundays where, where things go wrong. So the difference between them and Red Bull, are Red Bull just a better managed team on Sundays? Yeah, if, if we break down the points, some points have been lost by Leclerc. He sort of calculated at 32, most of them being this crash, another seven in Imola when he spun off late in the race. Strategies cost them in the vicinity of 30-something points. Already you could have, before this race, of course, before his crash, eliminated that deficit. But the big one's been unreliability. And I think off the top of my head, that's, that's up near the 70-point mark lost for Charles Leclerc this year. It's really been unreliability where this campaign's fallen down. To unpack what Leclerc said about him costing himself the championship through this crash, despite it being a relatively small number of points by the grander scheme of things, it's that unreliability, it is rare in Formula 1. Cars are pretty reliable now. They're almost bulletproof, certainly in previous years. But it's sort of the thing you all have to account for. A car is liable to fail at least once a season. Ferrari also knew this season they were being very aggressive with the engine because the engine engines are frozen in development this year. So they figured... Make it as fast as you can, and then you're allowed to make reliability fixes. So even if this year is a bit patchy, next year they'll have the best of both worlds. So knowing that going into this year, he and the team, the strategists, really needed to be perfect. So while reliability sort of been the big story up until this point for Ferrari this season in terms of their deficit, really, if that was their strategy, their strategies in the race and their driving had to be perfect. And neither of those things now we can say after 12 rounds have been good enough to take on Red Bull, which has just been close to flawless, flawless enough anyway to, to combat Ferrari. And I guess that's evident as well in, in Carlos Sainz, so the, the effective number two driver at, at Ferrari. He was in the midst of a, of a battle. He was dueling with Sergio Perez for, for third place uh, in the order near the end of the race. Uh, and his team's telling him to, to, to box while he's in the middle of this battle um, <laughs> as, he's, as he's literally wheel to wheel with, with Sergio Perez and then ended up having to pit later on anyway. I mean, the, the pit stop might have been necessary. I, I don't recall what how old his tyres were at that time. But, but from third position to try and cling on and get some points after having lost a bunch with Leclerc crashing out, you'd think they'd, they'd be fighting tooth and nail to get third position, but ends up, ended up costing him the podium and uh, finished fifth, I think it was, Carlos Sainz. Yeah, it's exactly right. And, and this is the thing, you know, Ferrari's logic kind of made sense there. They would have been targeting fifth before the race because he started from the back and that's a pretty good recovery. And they saw a way to get fifth and they played their cards there. Even if originally they decided they weren't going to. And then, as you said, in the middle of the fight, for some reason decided, oh, actually, yes, I think we will do that and just lock in fifth. But Ferrari, you can't justify that logic 
when you're so far behind in the championship, both team and driver, and obviously they'd already lost Leclerc by that point from the race, so they knew they were going to lose even more points in this Grand Prix. That kind of conservatism is the kind of thing you can pull off when the championship's really close, you're having a bad day, you just need to lock in some points, don't want to risk too much. Perfectly reasonable to do. You just play for the points. But Ferrari now, the only hope they've got is to be extremely aggressive. Like, they need to go out... And they need to risk being embarrassed sometimes for having strategies that are too ambitious, not being embarrassed for strategies that just have Sainz finish fifth when he was pitting from third and had a chance to finish third. The tyres were very old. They suspect they weren't going to make it to the end. But they might have. Pierre Gasly did pull off a stint that long in the end, so it was possible. But they didn't bother to try and find out. And that's really been the crux of the strategic problem. Ever since three or four rounds into the season... They've just been super conservative in a way that sort of makes you think they haven't realised they're behind in the championship. And that's really got to change for the second half of the year. Where do Mercedes sit among all of this? Because they're just slowly creeping back up into the fight as well. Not quite in a big way, but they're, they're hanging around the fringe in third. George Russell, apart from his DNF at Silverstone a few weeks ago, has been top five in every other race. Uh, Lewis Hamilton's had four podiums in a row. It's taken them a while, but how well have they acclimatised now through the season? They've certainly improved. There's no doubt about that. I mean, their early races, their first, let's say, quarter of the season was pretty dreadful. The car just wasn't behaving. Then ever since, well, particularly since Silverstone, so only a couple of races ago, it feels like they've got a handle on the car or a fairly good handle on the car, but there's still this inconsistency. So it's not really like, it's not breaking their backs anymore in the way it used to, but it's just not always fast. In qualifying this weekend, they were almost a second off and they were expecting to be maybe only three-tenths off. They really thought, they didn't say it too much publicly, but this was a race they could have won. In the end, they didn't have the pace, certainly not in qualifying or in the race. And while Hamilton and, and Russell and, and the team generally were quite pleased with second and third, and Hamilton was almost overjoyed, he'd almost he'd, he'd, he'd have won the race. That, that, that first of all tells you I mean, how long it's been since they've got a double podium. Since the end of last year, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, at the end of last year was the last time two Mercedes drivers were on the podium. But it kind of belies the fact that they're not close enough still. Now, they looked relatively close in this race, only 10 seconds between Verstappen and Hamilton, which is, which is not too bad, but this was a really heavy management race. Pretty much after that safety car, everyone knew their last thing on those tyres was going to be long. Everyone backed off heaps, like quite a lot. Even though it was a little bit of racing, it was, it was fairly slow after that. I think in a, in a more full-blooded race, they wouldn't have been even that close. I think you would have probably seen that margin doubled at least, and that would have really hammered home the fact that okay, the team kind of understands how the car works now, but they lost several months figuring that out. They're several months behind the development curve now, and that's where they need to catch up. They're still optimistic they'll get a win sometime this season. There are some tracks in the second half of the season that will suit them, but much fewer than there have been in the first half of this season. So it's still a really big push from here without some very good fortune for them to make that final step onto the top step of the podium. We are about halfway through the season. I think Austria one race ago was at the halfway point, but we've done 12 of the 22 races now on the calendar. So at the halfway mark of the season, uh, Michael, who have been the surprise packet for you, be it a team or a driver or a handful of drivers? Who's the one that's, uh, who's the one that's sprung up for you and, and really surprised you so far? I don't necessarily want to go straight to George Russell because I think we all knew or we all suspected that he was very good. Mm. But I have been impressed with just how smoothly he's handled this transition, especially because Mercedes has not been the cool, calm and collected Mercedes team of, of recent years. You know, it'd be one thing if he was slipping into a team that just continued their dominance and Lewis Hamilton was sort of just doing his thing and winning races and he was just allowed to 
you know, figure himself out and, and sort himself out in that car. He admittedly has not played as big a role in fixing the problems as Lewis Hamilton has because he is new to that team. But he's been getting consistently the most out of this car every weekend. And not that Hamilton hasn't, it's because he's been troubleshooting, but he's been, on, I would say, on par with Hamilton almost all of this season. Uh, he's been saying all the right things, behaving all the right way, has never been overpowered by the fact that he's got this burden of, of Mercedes, the winning team now struggling sometimes in the midfield and sometimes with you know, the back of the front runners. He's just adapted really, really well. And again, to go back to as I started, I don't think that's too much of a surprise, but he's just done it so smoothly that I mean, if, you, if anyone at Mercedes was concerned or even a little bit worried, you know, he dispatched Bottas, who was a solid number two driver and safe pair of hands with this young guy who might upset the balance of the team. None of the sort this year. He's absolutely the future of Mercedes. Even Lewis Hamilton said it last week. I think he said, no, no, he, he loves to say all the right things when the chip's a little bit down. But he sort of said, well, if I'm not here, I'm confident that George Russell is going to be able to do all the things that I can do with his team, fundamentally. Um, that's been a really big positive for Mercedes this season, I suppose. And, and really sort of like one of the understated stories of the year, I think. And then the opposite way, who's, who's underperformed? Who's, who's been below par this season that you expected to do better? I would probably say McLaren, to be totally honest. And this is not, I'm not going to lean into suddenly uh, having a big crack at Daniel Ricciardo, as has been the way in the last couple of weeks. But the team generally, I think, has underperformed quite dramatically. They were on a trajectory to be not necessarily among the front runners, because you can't guarantee that, as Mercedes has shown this week. But it really looked like they should have been taking a big step forward this year. They'd done all sort of the right things in the build-up to this year. Uh, they'd come off development at the right time last year or so, it seemed, to invest in this year's car. They've had some kind of interesting-looking developments on that launch car at the start of the year. And things have just... I mean, the start of the year went wrong for them. They had some really critical problems with that car that took them a couple of rounds to understand. You remember in Bahrain, the first race, they finished last of all of the teams, which is really not on for McLaren. But while they've recovered from that... I'd be surprised if they finished fourth. So they'll be slipping behind at least one, or probably just one place to Alpine this year compared to last season. And suddenly it feels like Alpine is the team that's got a bit of momentum. You know, they've got some solid funding now. They're growing their staff base. They've got the factory mostly upgraded to where they need it to be to continue to progress. And it just feels like they've really come off the boil. And I started this season expecting McLaren to be one of four front-running teams. In the end, I guess I was 50% right, but I got the easy 50% correct, arguably. So that, for me, has been probably the biggest disappointment of this season. Most of the other teams are kind of doing more or less what you expected them to do, but McLaren just way off where they should be. Daniel Ricciardo's had just four points finishes this season. It has been deflating for him. Uh, Lando Norris has been a little better, but, yeah, it's been mid, mid to low points for, for most races for Lando. But Daniel Ricciardo, though, what, would, what do you think he's considering for his future now? Well, if you listen to him, he says that he's absolutely committed to McLaren next year. He's got that contract in his pocket and reportedly all the options for termination are on his side. So he did a very good job when he signed that contract. So there shouldn't be speculation around that. The only speculation really was whether or not he wanted to continue and he's adamant that he does want to continue. So he will continue to push through. I thought it was really interesting what he said this week. He said to a couple of different places as well that if he has a winning car, he'll win with it. And McLaren has really only had a winning car maybe twice in the last 12 months, well, even longer than that, but let's say since Daniel's been around twice. And he won one of them, and the other one, the race was interrupted by a horrible rainstorm and none of the McLarens won. So you have to say, he's sort of on the money in that. And even thinking back to his Red Bull days, I can't think of a race 
that he wasn't contending to win if the car was capable of winning. It was either him or Max. He was very close second, or he was winning those barnstorming races. We know virtually every race he's won has never been from pole. It's never been an easy win. It's always been something he's gone and got. And so I think that, you know, if you're Daniel, we obviously can't see what's happening inside McLaren in the sense of what their development path's looking like, how confident they are that they might be able to recover this backward step next season. But if you have the confidence that the team can make those steps again, and if you have the confidence also that the team and the, the development of the car is moving in a direction that works more for that driving style, and there's certainly no suspicion that say or even rumour that the team doesn't want him there or anything like that, then there's no reason he shouldn't continue. Because I also think as much as it's been a dispiriting 18 months, really, that win aside... I, I can't imagine him wanting to just pack up and go home with this, these of being his last two years. You know, as much as he's obviously trying now, I can't imagine him wanting to go without having tried the maximum, whether that's the three-year contract or maybe a contract beyond that, who knows? So I, I can't imagine he would be thinking that this is going to be it because it's just a, it's, it's a down note he doesn't deserve to end his career on. And we can say that as even though people who follow his career, but surely he's thinking the same as the guy who knows what he's capable of. And last one for you, Michael, on the next Aussie coming through, Oscar Piastri. So this weekend there were comments from uh, Laurent Rossi, the CEO of Alpine, uh, who said that he expects Oscar to be on the grid in 2023. He didn't really say anything new, Laurent Rossi, but I guess it just maybe reinforced the idea that we will see Piastri in some way, shape or form on the grid next season, whether it's with Alpine, which is probably less likely, or whether it's through a loan uh, to another team. Um, Do you see that as being the most likely option for Piastri next season? Alone does seem most likely, and Alpine started to say that a little bit more loudly. It was sort of, they talked around it earlier in the year, and now they're sort of saying it much more openly, because I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, They've suggested they're going to keep Fernando Alonso. Alonso wants to stay. Interesting this week, it's been reported that uh, Alonso wants, well, we know he wants to stay for two years. We already knew that, but that he's apparently only been offered a one-year deal, which suggests that Oscar would be loaned for one year somewhere and then brought back, but Alonso wants to stay longer. And to be fair to Fernando arguably one of the greatest drivers in or of his generation or even longer. He's performing at an extremely high level. You can't doubt him for that. He's probably one of the better performers out there at the moment. So it's a really interesting situation for Alpine in that. There's also this second risk, because he'd, he'd presumably be loaned to Williams, and all signs are that Williams are going to make space for him there as well uh, when Nicholas Latifi's contract expires at the end of the year. But Williams also has their junior driver in Formula 2, Logan Sargent, the American, who up until he retired from the feature race this weekend was up to second in that championship, won a couple of races as well. And all of a sudden, if Williams a young driver, and an American as well, and everyone wants the next American driver, don't they? If he wins Formula 2, not only can he not compete in Formula 2 again, but then you know, you've got a driver that you own, he's your guy, you've paid for his development, he's ready for Formula 1. That puts Alpine in a really interesting and difficult situation. So it's really in their interest to get this done before that can happen. So a little twist in the road still to get Oscar on the grid, but I'd be shocked if someone couldn't get him a seat somewhere because he deserves it and he needs to be in Formula 1 next year. It's all in Mark Webber's hands, isn't it? He's the manager of Oscar Piastri. This is on him now. Mm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Give him a call. Send him an email. Make sure it gets done. (laughs) Michael, it's a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for uh, joining us to recap uh, the French Grand Prix this morning and give us a little halfway report at the uh, midpoint of the season. Um, We'll speak to you again. Thank you.
Thank you, man. Anytime. Michael Laminato with us from the Box of Neutrals podcast and the F1 strategy report as well. The Sporting Capital will take a break. We'll come back on the other side of this with more global sporting headlines to wrap up tonight's program. The first serve not far away either with Brett Phillips. That's next. We'll take our final break and wrap up after this. Our final segment on the show tonight, so the, 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 the Sporting Capital, a bit of a tongue tie at the end of the program. Brett Phillips coming up after this. He's never tongue tied. He called that uh, Jamie Elliott goal beautifully yesterday. Uh, so make sure to flood the text messages with praise for BP on the other side of this uh, when the first serve hits your airwaves. Uh, 0433 if you'd like to send through a couple of text messages in the remaining minutes of the program. Some headlines from around the day, starting off with uh, Kane Lambert announced his retirement effective immediately from the Tigers. Three-time Premiership player, 135 games, finished second in the 2018 Richmond Best and Fairest. Uh, but has been dealing with a chronic hip injury. Just played the seven games this season, so he's called it quits. Uh, The Gold Coast Titans in the NRL have made the stunning call to sack former captain Kevin Proctor for vaping inside Combank Combank Stadium during uh, the Gold Coast Titans' loss to uh, the Bulldogs on the weekend. Uh, He posted an Instagram story to his own Instagram page uh, where he can be seen vaping inside the uh, cubicle at the ground at halftime. Now, he wasn't playing, but he was he's still there as a squad member on the day supporting his team, and he was uh, posted a, a video uh, vaping during a uh, during the game in the cubicle in the stadium. So he's been he's been sacked. He's gone. That's it. Uh, Jonas Vingegaard has won this year's yellow jersey as the winner of the Tour de France, uh, securing the title for Denmark. Uh, Jasper Philipsen won the sprint on the final stage with the Champs-Élysées, but uh, he, uh, Jonas Vingegaard defeated Tadej Pogacar, who was looking to go three in a row uh, in the Tour de France, but he beat him by uh, over, around about three and a half minutes. And uh, I mentioned Kelsey Lee Barber earlier, backing up her World Athletics title in the Javelin. I'm a big fan of Mondo Duplantis, who is the best pole vaulter in the world. This kid's a freak, and he broke his own world record again. Unreal. That's it. Sporting Capital done. First serve up next. See ya. Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low-maintenance Trex deck. The only colour fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.